Welcome to Wrestling Before God. I'm your host, Elise Neville, and I'm a scripture nerd with no special qualifications. But this podcast addresses some of the questions that you may have and that I definitely had during this week's study of Come Follow Me. There's so much going on in these three sections, but I'd like to focus on what stood out for me in sections three and five of the Doctrine and Covenants. And we read about Martin's intense request to God for evidence of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. And for me, this prompted the question, why are we sometimes not provided with all the evidence we want? So that's the question we'll discuss today. But before looking into that, let's get into the historical context. So sections three and five primarily involve Joseph Smith and Martin Harris. Martin Harris is 20 years the prophet's senior, and in 1831, he was described by Palmyra's local newspaper as, quote, an honorable and upright man and an obliging and benevolent neighbor. He is secured to himself by honest industry a respectable fortune, unquote. Before Joseph Smith even began translating, he'd approached Martin Harris to see if he might be interested in providing a loan to publish the plates. Martin and his wife, Lucy, were actually both intrigued, but Martin was still a little bit hesitant, and it wasn't until Joseph decided to move away from Palmyra to get away from people who were wanting to take the plates that Martin met up with Joseph, and he gave him $50 in silver with the explanation, quote, I give this to you to do the Lord's work, unquote. Joseph told Martin he'd pay the money back, but Martin insisted that the money was a gift. And $50 in 1827 has the same spending power as about $1,100 does today. So it wasn't a paltry sum. It's not exactly certain what the money was used for, but Joseph moved to Harmony and eventually started working on the translation. Soon, Martin traveled to Harmony from Palmyra, which by horse would have taken somewhere between two and three days and told Joseph he wanted to help with the translation by taking copies of the characters on the plates and showing them to scholars in New York City. According to the church's publication, Revelations in Context, it's possible that Martin, quote, wanted additional reassurance that the plates were authentic, or he may have thought a testimonial would help them borrow money to publish the translation, unquote. If he was looking for evidence that the plates were authentic, this was the first of several times that he was looking for proof. So another time he looks for proof is while he's acting as scribe, while Joseph translates the plates. I, this is a hilarious story. So while Joseph wasn't looking, Martin swapped Joseph's seer stone for an ordinary stone to see if Joseph, quote, had learned those sentences and was merely repeating them, end quote. It seems that Joseph passed the test to Martin's satisfaction because Joseph told Martin that something was wrong and that he couldn't translate. And I want to discuss that Searstone story because it sounds a little odd if you don't have a real picture of what was going on there. So most members of the church, when they think of Joseph translating, they think of him using the Nephite interpreters. And those were described by Joseph as, quote, two transparent stones set in the rim of a bow. So they looked a little like large spectacles. And most of today's members of the church would refer to those spectacles as the Urim and Thummim. But Joseph didn't just use those Nephite interpreters to translate. He also used at least two other stones in translating, and these were fairly ordinary. And unlike the Nephite interpreters, they were observed casually by actually several witnesses. One of the stones was white, and the other was dark brown. And according to the historical record, all these items were used interchangeably, and throughout that record, most of the time, all of those items were referred to by the term Urim and Thummim. So 
The stones are what Martin Harris was swapping in this story. The story about how Joseph started using seer stones, I feel like tells us a lot about God and how he sometimes works with his people. So during Joseph's time, there was a somewhat common folk practice called glass looking. And there were a few people in Palmyra who participated in this practice and people of the community would come to the glass lookers and ask them to look in their stones to see the location of lost things. It's like your find your iPhone app or something. (laughs) And Joseph became really interested in this practice and he found his own stones while digging as a farmhand. Pretty soon he was being approached by members of his community who were asking for his help. In fact, Martin Harris tells the story of Joseph Smith finding a pin he had lost. Martin says, we couldn't find it. I then took Joseph on surprise and said to him, I said, take your stone. He took it and placed it in his hat and placed his face in his hat. He reached out his hand beyond me on the right and moved a little stick. And there I saw the pin, which he picked up and gave to me, end quote. By putting his stone in his hat, Joseph was apparently able to see the illumination of the stone better. Incidentally, actually, later on when he was translating the plates, Joseph continued to use this stone in the hat method for that purpose. Anyway, in Joseph's youth, there was a man named Josiah Stowell who had heard about Joseph's seeking abilities. And according to the church's online historical topics section titled Treasure Seeking, quote, In the 1820s, a fascination with purported Spanish treasure deposits led prospectors like Josiah Stowell to enlist the aids of seers like Joseph in their search for treasure. Stowell trusted Joseph, sought his assistance in seeking treasure, and even took his advice to finally give up the hunt. Joseph Smith Sr. considered his son's ability sacred and hoped he would cease using it to look for earthly treasures. As Joseph prepared to translate the Book of Mormon, he was commanded to have nothing further to do with those who sought treasure and instead use his gift to translate and seek revelation, I just want to point out that God doesn't tell Joseph to stop looking in the seer stones completely. He just commands Joseph to stop using them to find treasure. And I personally find so much beauty and mercy in that, that God allows Joseph to use this method that he's already really familiar with and put it toward the good of the gospel. In fact, along those lines, Richard Bushman, a Latter-day Saint scholar, said that before beginning his research into magical practices and how they mesh with Christian belief, asking him to believe that Joseph Smith was once a treasure seeker was, quote, like asking me to believe that my grandmother was a lifelong member of the mafia, unquote. And I think so many members of the church can relate to that feeling, that unfamiliarity with this, you know, seer stone culture and the treasure seeking, it feels a little weird. However, as Bushman's research progressed and he realized that Joseph Smith did engage in the folk magic practices of his time, he came to some conclusions that I find so insightful. Bushman says, quote, why was treasure seeking not exposed and forbidden by God? What would happen if the Lord were to forbid and deny every cultural practice that is inconsistent with His divine order? What if every aspect of our lives that is unworthy of a perfect celestial existence was condemned? The idea is not to rip away all error instantly, but to redirect and purify. We didn't come here to live in a celestial culture. We lived that life before we came. We're here to live amidst error, evil, suffering, and corruption in a celestial world. 
We are not to abandon this world, but to transform it. We're here to reform worldly culture inch by inch into godly culture. That struggle is why we came. We're on earth to make our ambition, our learning, our art serve God. From that perspective, Joseph Smith's treasure-seeking can be looked on as a great success. From the place where he entered history as a poor New England farm boy caught up in treasure-seeking and a hundred other worldly things, he went on to become a prophet and revelator who used all of his gifts to advance God's kingdom. Are we doing as well as he did in turning our treasure-seeking into service to our Heavenly Father's children? End quote. I think he states that idea so beautifully. This is a pattern we find in the scriptures, that Heavenly Father meets people where they're at and he transforms their work for good. Okay, anyways, (laughs) we were discussing Martin's several attempts to get proof of the truthfulness of Joseph's prophetic mission. And I mentioned that he had taken transcripts of characters on the plates to experts in New York City, and that he'd also attempted to switch one of Joseph's seer stones to see if he was kind of memorizing those sentences. And then after helping scribe the 116 pages, Martin asked Joseph to ask the Lord if he could borrow the manuscript and show it to his wife and a few others. And most of us are very familiar with this story. We know that the Lord told Joseph no two times and finally relented the third time that Joseph asked as long as Martin abided by some very strict rules. But then Martin didn't stick to the conditions. The pages were either lost or stolen, and Joseph Smith received Doctrine and Covenants section 3, in which he and Martin were severely chastised. And then again, Martin asked Joseph to ask the Lord if he could see the plates, and that's when we received Doctrine and Covenants section 5, and Martin again gets chastised by the Lord. And to me, this seems like a lot of attempts to ask for proof. Like, Martin is pretty bold in asking over and over again for this proof. But I think it's important that we understand the reasons why he was asking for this evidence. So his wife had become really disenchanted with Joseph Smith and his claims about the gold plates, particularly, I think, because she seems to be a bit offended that he wouldn't let her see the plates. She had many times requested to see them and her request had been denied based on the Lord's insistence to Joseph Smith that no one see the gold plates yet. As a result, she really doubted the authenticity of his claims. She was also under the correct impression that Martin was planning to finance the publication of the Book of Mormon, and that was a very significant cost by most standards. And so for this reason, she actually was preparing a lawsuit against Joseph Smith in which she claimed that he never had any record, and he was only claiming he did in order to obtain money. And she had several witnesses who claimed that the plates he purported to have were really just a box with sand or maybe that he'd made tin plates. And Martin was required to testify in this 1829 lawsuit. And that might be one of the reasons he made so many pressing requests to Joseph to be given some proof. And the Lord in section five does tell Martin that he could be one of the three witnesses based on his righteousness, but that promise wasn't fulfilled before Lucy Harris's lawsuit. And that brings us right back to today's question, which is, why doesn't the Lord provide us with more evidence of the truthfulness of the gospel? Or another way of asking this question might be, why does God require faith? And I don't think all members of the church have this question. I recognize that there are many people who have this gift of faith innately and who aren't bogged down with the need for proof. My sister-in-law, Lillian, who, who's actually helped me do a lot of the research for this podcast, and she is a fellow scripture nerd. <laughs> she is one of these people. 
she has this innate gift of faith. She was telling me that when she heard about the seer stones in her BYU class from Susan Easton Black, she thought it was odd, but it never really bothered her. She also explained that with her family's Brazilian roots comes this culture of acceptance of supernatural experiences, and that may have helped her mind be you know, more open to acceptance of some of those things. In, in my experience with Lillian and several others of my family members, their gift of faith is, I think, such a blessing to our church culture in so many ways. I, on the other hand, have always considered myself a questioner, and I haven't tried to be that way. I just have this insatiable need to figure things out. And because of that, I used to approach the gospel with what I thought was the mindset of a scientist. So, you know, follow the evidence and what conclusion does that lead to? In fact, as a junior in high school, I totally immersed myself in this process of sifting through the evidence and it lasted about a year. It started when the Presbyterian church across from my high school started a special Sunday school class called Mormon Awareness, which was super fun. I remember several of my friends from school taking this class. They would ask me questions, which for the most part I could answer, but every once in a while they'd throw in some historical question I, that I knew absolutely nothing about. And so I would go home, I'd log into AOL, which now I realize is an ancient relic. So that's the way we used to get onto the internet. And then I would look it up online. And after several similar occurrences, I was just, I was drowning in anti-Mormon literature. And, and I wasn't trying to find those sources. It's just that at the time, anti-Mormons were the only ones publishing online content about some of the church's history. And all of the things that I discovered were deeply troubling to me at the time. I mean, that's the way they were presented, right? They were meant to be troubling. But I spent several months accumulating evidence that way until ultimately I I just wasn't sure anymore if there was a God. And that's when I just scrapped all my beliefs and I started all over. And then I took each of my beliefs and I started with the most basic. Is there a God? And then I looked for evidence for that. But that process was really hard because I felt so much bias in the answers I was looking for. And I felt like there was no way for me to avoid that bias. And I feel like God acknowledges that problem in section five. He says, quote, behold, if they will not believe my words, they would not believe you, my servant Joseph, if it were possible that you should show them all these things which I've committed unto you, end quote. So he's saying, you know, the evidence that he has given Joseph Smith, the plates and the interpreters and the breastplate, they can be interpreted differently just based on how we see the world. He's saying, look, Joseph, you can look at the plates and see evidence of me where someone else will look at the plates and explain them away, give all sorts of reasons for them that avoid this divine origin. So I was worried about this problem of bias. And I remember going to my dad about, about the problem. As a side note, during this time, he was so great. He gave me so much space to question and work things out. He really trusted me and never preached to me. But when I asked him this question, essentially, how can I know when something is true and not feel like I'm getting answers based on my biases, he responded like this, you know, Elise, when I experience doubts about the gospel, I always come back to the plan of salvation. And I think to myself, look at what an elegant solution the plan of salvation is to all the problems that plague humanity. If it's not true, it should be true. It's so beautiful. And at the time, I found this statement deeply disorienting and really unsettling because he was embracing his bias. He was like leaning into it. He was telling me I could believe in something simply because I wanted to. And I did not 
understand this because to my teenage, very concrete brain, all I cared about was the truth. It was very black and white. And it wasn't until a few years later when I'd already started to piece back bits of my testimony that I really realized the profundity (laughs) of what it was he was saying. I think Terrell Givens, who's another Latter-day Saint scholar, does a really excellent job of conveying this idea and why it is this way. He says, quote, In the course of my spiritual pilgrimage, my innate capacity for doubt led me to the insight that faith is a choice, that the call to faith is a summons to engage the heart, to attune it, to resonate in sympathy with principles and values and ideals that we devoutly hope are true and have reasonable but not certain grounds for believing to be true. I'm convinced that there must be grounds for doubt as well as belief, for only in these conditions of equilibrium and balance, equally enticed by the one or the other, is my heart truly free to choose belief or cynicism, faith or faithlessness. Under these conditions, what I choose to embrace, to be responsive to, is the purest reflection of who I am and what I love. End quote. Then, Brother Givens lists five principal reasons he chooses to believe. That year, and for several years after, I spent time piecing together my main reasons, I call them my stakes, for choosing to believe in the restored gospel because I found that I truly loved the gospel. Now, I find myself doing the same thing my dad told me he did. When I doubt, I return to my stakes, and I find so much beauty in them that it reminds me of my desire to believe. So, I think that's the first answer to our question. God doesn't give us an abundance of evidence because we need to be free to choose Him. And in that choice, we show Him what it is that we love. And the answer to that question, what do you love, is so much a part of God's test for us here in mortality. And then secondly, it's very clear from these sections to me that God sort of prevents us from having all the evidence because humility is a key component in following Him. Martin Harris continues to ask for these evidences because he wants to bolter his case to his wife, right? And respectable friends who thinks he's been fooled by Joseph. He wants to maintain his dignity and reputation. They seem like good reasons to me to ask for evidence, but the Lord doesn't seem to care about those things. In section three, the Lord says to Joseph, quote, you should not have feared man more than God. End quote. And then he calls Martin a wicked man who, quote, has depended upon his own judgment and boasted in his own wisdom. End quote. And so it's clear that God's calling for this humility before him, that we need to acknowledge his wisdom. There's this moment in the book of Job that conveys this kind of humility that I think God is looking for. So We're all familiar with the story of Job. He has been an upright man and honest before God. And then in this weird scenario, bet situation between Satan and God, Satan takes away all of Job's, well, a lot of Job's blessings, right? His children die. His flocks die. He loses a lot of things. And then Job eventually starts to lose his health. And Job doesn't understand why. And he's devastated. He's questioning God's justice. And he doesn't understand why God has allowed all of these situations that have caused his suffering. But in the midst of his anguish, 
as he's contending with his friends, he says, quote, Though God slay me, yet will I trust in him. End quote. So we see that even as Job is wrestling with these questions of God's justice and goodness, that he still trusts in God. And with that trust, God eventually rewards Job's humility by showing up and he, and he blesses Job. My favorite example of this kind of humility when confronted with a difficult problem has been presented multiple times at conference lately, but I, I truly love it. It's in the New Testament. And Jesus has just taught this really challenging doctrine, which causes several of his disciples or many of his disciples to leave and stop following him. And then he turns to his 12 and he asks them, will ye also go away? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. End quote. And of this moment, Elder Ballard taught, quote, when others focused on what they could not accept, the apostles chose to focus on what they did believe and know. And as a result, they remained with Christ. End quote. I think that key point there, they remained with Christ, is so important. Because, well, I mentioned earlier that I used to approach gospel questions like a scientist, but now I remain focused on my goal. And my goal is to remain with Christ as revealed by Joseph Smith. That's what I want to believe. And so I'm a questioning person. I still ask those difficult questions. I don't put them on a shelf, but I do remind myself that I personally don't want to go away from the restored gospel. And so I remind myself of those four or five stakes that I've chosen to believe. Things like, I believe that God is merciful and good and kind. I believe he wants to save his children. And armed with the things I believe, I work backwards to the question. And I do a lot of asking. And sometimes my questions are answered quickly, and sometimes I wrestle with them for a long time. And we will definitely talk about those. <laughs> but I truly believe and have experienced that when I continue to engage with God, he shows up for me, just like he did for Job, and ultimately for Martin Harris. Thanks for joining us this week. Thanks so much to Lillian Winters for her help with today's podcast. If you like this podcast, please leave a review. It sure helps. See you next week. <laughs>